0: Right, the Ordinance of Covenanting, this is week 37. Uh, this will be the third part of uh, on the National Covenant. And we're going to be looking at the last portion of the National Covenant. Uh, fourth Term of Communion. It states that public social covenanting is an ordinance of God, obligatory in churches and nations under the New Testament, that the National Covenant and the Solemn League are an exemplification of this divine institution, that these deeds are of continued obligation upon the moral person. <clears throat> so last time we looked at the um, the legal uh, aspect of the covenant really it was a review of what we would call a historic testimony showing how they had enacted the the national covenant uh, from its first inception really showing us that the national covenant was part of a general um, a general Uh, attitude on the part of the whole country or the whole nation of Scotland and that this was all in accordance with uh, the reformation of both church and state and the section we covered in the National Covenant last week the section we're covering this week uh, these are actually sections which are added in 1638 at the renewal <clears throat> at what we now would call uh, the beginning of the period of the Second Reformation. So the Second Reformation is going to pick up uh, the... the um, the points that were laid down in the first Reformation. Uh, the first Reformation is a reformation from popery. The second reformation is a reformation from prelacy. So they the first was to get Romanism out of the country. Right to get the jurisdiction of Rome, get or I should say get the country away from Romanism, and then the Second Reformation is really about rooting Romanism out of the nation, in its civil and ecclesiastical uh, organizations. And so, in the last section, as they're preparing the covenant for renewal. Uh, Particularly, Lord Waterston lays out um, the the legal ground for the covenant, uh, showing that it had, in fact, the National Covenant, had, in fact, uh, been adopted and enacted by both representatives of church and state, that it had found large reception at its original taking. It was not something done in a corner, it was something adopted by the body politic and by the national church. And as such, uh, there's a peculiar uh, feature of this. that we've, uh, we've alluded to it and we're going to be talking about it in the future. And that is, you don't really have a right. There's no right to deform the church. There's no right to recede from the truth. And, and so there's no authority. If there's no authority to deform or decline from the truth, all authority is for reform. All authority is for uh, maintaining what has been attained. And so any decline... <clears throat> Between the first and the second reformations, anything that has occurred that is a departure or was a departure in any respect, uh, including, for example, the adoption of the five articles of Perth, uh, which are one of the things that they're very much, uh, between the first and second reformations, stirs up a lot of trouble. You remember the five articles of Perth had to do with celebrating holy days and private communion and private baptism and so on. All right, these things were brought into the Church of Scotland, and and it was against the will of the people. It was also against the sworn covenant of the nation in its civil and ecclesiastical capacity. So by in laying out the legal ground, uh, the historical testimony. Now, the section we're going to look at tonight is really largely the, the production of Alexander Henderson. Henderson is one of the older ministers at the time in 1638. He's one of the uh, one of these people. He was born in 1583. He remembers the um, the Church of Scotland before it really began to decline in the early 1600s. Before all of these departures, right? But the point is, these departures, these departures are are um, are are both illegal from a from a a constitutional point of view, Uh, but they're they're also, they're without ground or foundation. They don't have any foundation in the authority that God has given either to the ministry or or magistracy. So, we have the addition in 1638, then, first of uh, a number of points of historical testimony, and then second, there is an accommodation, an historical accommodation, that is um, being appended to this uh really to to show that the points that are made in this covenant are points which have a broader application. Not only are they seeking to reclaim all of the ground of the First Reformation, but they want to make sure, now that they see that certain uh, certain things have been conducive to, to what they would call the bringing back of popery, particularly all of the um, all of the the ornaments of prelacy. You know, the government by hierarchical bishops and all of the liturgical trappings, all of that. Uh, these things have been uh, they've been the avenues through which popery has been reintroduced. So Henderson, in this section, is going to, and we'll talk about this, he's he's showing us that uh, there's an applicability, right? These principles of the First Reformation are not just a matter of letter of the law, but there's a spirit to that law. And the spirit of the law, uh, the spirit of that covenant, it turns out, Henderson is really asserting, is contrary not only to popery but prelacy. Is prelacy actually has a large measure of the spirit of popery in it. Right? So whatever we find, whatever we see with respect to um, prelacy... Uh, is suspect, right? So understand that in 1638, the renewal of the National Covenant is a renewal which is undertaken uh, with an appeal to historic testimony as well as what we would call making accommodations. Now these principles are going to be exemplified uh, later on when we look at the Arkansas Renovation, because in the Arkansas Renovation, uh, we are going to be given an example of how the church and a small portion of a nation maintains uh, these covenant attainments in the face of widespread defection. We're going to be dealing with a different question altogether than what we're dealing with here. But here is what we will see is the beginning of the Second Reformation, and that is another affirmation on the part of the entire nation of Scotland, again, in its civil and ecclesiastical representatives. They're all going to be... involved in, in taking this um, uh, national covenant in its in the form that's being set forth here with large additions by um, Boriston and and Henderson. So those additions become part of the, uh, the Covenant. Because they are, in fact, now authoritative expositions of that national covenant and are designed to enforce the idea that the covenant that was taken against popery certainly has bearing on rooting out prelacy as well. Right, so... As we go through this, we're going. We're, we're, we need to remember we're looking at the section now that <coughs> is largely an apologetic and an accommodation to the times. And Henderson is writing this um, as, as a representative of the ministry, in as much as Warriston was writing his section as. Uh, a representative of the magistrate, the chief magistrate. But he's writing that that legal historical testimony. And now Henderson is going to um, bring in the concurrence of the ministry with the uh, the enactments of of the magistrate, the chief magistrate. All right. So all of this, <clears throat> again, um, all of this is uh, something that is meant to um, consolidate and mm-hmm. and bring forward that all the principles of the first Reformation. And as I, I start to read this, um, when when we talk about the law, the uh, The Confession of Faith. Above written, they're talking about uh, the National Covenant and the National Covenant of 1580-81. That's already taken into it. Also, the doctrinal position of the Confession of Faith of 1560, the Scots Confession. And it's also incorporating... Um, the polity of the first and second books of Discipline. All right. Now, in addition to that, there are references here to public catechisms, <clears throat> which have been set down, and the public catechisms that are that are mentioned uh, are there. There are several that that. Attained authoritative status in Scotland, which is why there's a plural. One of them was the Catechism uh, that is uh, from Geneva. There was a translation of the Geneva Catechism that was used, and there was also um, there was also a Catechism that was penned by John Craig. A communicant, uh, it was a catechism for communicants. John Craig is the primary author, he was a king's chaplain, he's the primary author of the National Covenant, that first section that we read a couple of weeks ago. Okay? He also did a catechism, and his catechism, along with that covenant, uh, had authoritative uh, position in Scotland. And they remain, uh, these catechisms remain part of, just like the, uh, not just the Books of Discipline, but the Scots Confession, they remain part of what we would call um, canon law. Uh, They they have canonic status in the church. So even if you're not familiar with them, they have... Canonical status; they've been superseded by the documents uh, at, at uh, from Westminster, to the extent that they differ. But in the extent that they do not differ, or they cover something that is not covered, they remain authoritative. Right. So only in areas where there may be a, a difference, and it hasn't been. Uh, in the adopting acts, it was not uh, there was not a reservation put with respect to it, and there weren't uh, that I'm aware of with the catechisms. And I'm not saying that there are any material differences. There may be some different emphases, but um, anyway, these catechisms are still of authoritative use, and they still have a place in the life of the church. So uh, they are helps. I mean, we can can use them. They're worth looking at. They're worth studying. And they are available. So I just want you to know as I'm reading this, this is what we're talking about. Um, In addition to that, uh, there are also going to be references to acts of lawful general assemblies. That's generally going to be any assembly of the Church of Scotland uh, from about 1560 to uh, 16, uh, right around 1618, is when things become quite problematic, and there, there are, there's a suspension of of the general assembly anyway, uh, but early on in the reforming times there are reforming general assemblies and those acts are things that are also helpful for understanding what their intentions were in taking and enacting these covenants so let me begin reading this is the third and the, this is the last section of the national covenant so uh, in obedience to the commandment of god conform to the practice of the godly in former times And according to the laudable example of our worthy and religious progenitors, and of many yet living amongst us, which was warranted also by act of counsel, commanding a general band to be made and subscribed by His Majesty's subjects of all ranks, that band is the National Covenant, for two causes. One was for defending the true religion, as it was then reformed, and is expressed in the Confession of Faith Above Written, and a former large confession established by sundry acts of lawful general assemblies, that's the uh, Scots Confession of 1560, and of, and of parliaments, under which it hath relation, set down in public catechisms, and which hath been for many years with a blessing from heaven, preached and professed in this church and kingdom as God's undoubted truth, Grounded only upon His written word, and so um, they're they're asserting something here, and we're going to come back to this point. We're not going to look at it in the first question, but they're asserting this idea that all of the things that we find in the Scots Confession, the National Covenant, uh, the Geneva Catechism, the uh, Craig's Catechism, uh, I would say the, the books of, of uh, discipline and so on. All of this <coughs> is grounded upon the written Word of God. All right, so anything that is of substantial doctrinal or practical matter is grounded upon the Word of God. Anything circumstantial, is is guided by uh, light of nature, Christian prudence, and general rules of the word. All right, so that's the that's the idea that they're talking about here. But all of this is uh, Henderson, in particular, who is penning this, is referring all of this back to. Um, the practice of the godly in former times. In other words, why are we renewing covenant in 1638? And he's saying because this is how the godly have sought to reform the church in our nation and biblically. So, question one then. Is covenanting a duty commanded by God? And conformable to the practice of the godly in former times? Uh, the answer is yes. We we'll want to look at 2 Kings 11, 17. 2
1: Kings 17. The covenant between the Lord and the king and people, that they should be the Lord's people, between the king also people.
0: Yeah, and we, we've been talking about this for weeks now, right? That <coughs> covenanting is a duty commanded by God. It's certainly. We've seen that there's plenty of example in Scripture, uh, but we also a few weeks ago surveyed uh, briefly, but we surveyed uh, some examples uh, historically, that there there are examples of this in the early church, and there are also, of course, numerous examples that are documented from the time of what we would call the First Reformation, the Reformation from Popery. In fact, we saw both Lutherans and Reformed uh, were were very interested in this idea. So covenanting is a joining ordinance whereby a sure and indissoluble knot is tied between God and his people. Look at Jeremiah 50, verse 5.
2: Jeremiah 50, verse 5. They shall ask the way to Zion with their faces set thitherward, saying, Come and let us join ourselves to the Lord in a perpetual covenant.
0: That's an for God. And we know it's also the great means ordained by God to put an end to distrust and to remove all doubt. This is why God has done this. There's a firm joining because it, it, it covenanting is really um a way of alleviating or removing Distrust and doubt between those who enter into such alliances, covenant alliances. Look at Hebrews six sixteen. And we we saw that there were um, there were really five broad covenants in Scotland uh, that were taken up prior to the National Covenant, between 1557 and 1562, there were five very important, more public covenants, but there's a very good book by a man, Lumsden, on the covenants of Scotland, and he gives a survey of numerous, beside those and beside the National Covenant, numerous covenants that uh, people made in more limited fashion within Scotland. So we see that this is happening, and we, we also have examples of this in um, Howie Scott's Worthies. If you read that book, you'll see people covenanting at the time of the First Reformation. They're, they're doing this. It's in a more limited fashion. These five are more public and, and with a broader uh, with a broader uh, intent but <clears throat> there are a number of narrower acts of covenanting which which are um, uh, all of which are, are designed to to um, take us you know, out of a, a deformed and, and a deforming situation <clears throat> and bring us to really a height of reformation. So this is a way that things were done in the Bible. And I would argue that it's a good, uh, a good argument that Scotland in particular... Is interested in uh, biblical reform of the church because they're behaving in a way uh, that is exemplified to us in the Bible, right? And good and godly examples in the Bible are uh, not just examples, but they they have the force of of um, uh, command, right? So. <clears throat> Let's continue with the national covenant. The other cause was for maintaining the King's Majesty, his person and estate, the true worship of God and the King's authority being so straightly joined is that they had the same friends and common enemies. It did stand and fall together. And finally being convinced in our minds and confessing with our mouths that the present and succeeding generations in this land are bound to keep the foresaid national oath and subscription inviolable. So, uh, there are several things to note here before we get to our second question. One is this, and this goes to something I, I mentioned last time. The, the intention, and we saw this in all the legal enactments, the intention of the Scots people was to shut down popery, not only in church, but in state. And the, the reason for this uh, is they understood that popery is not only a religious, uh, force but it's a quasi political conspiracy and it's a conspiracy against the protestant king of Scotland right now they're they're trying to draw this out and say look not only is popery going to undermine uh, a real protestant monarchy in Scotland a, a protestant government but prelacy will as well. <clears throat> but they've already established uh, that in law, they recognized popery to be politically subversive. And when we talk about political subversion, <clears throat> if you understand the, um, the mission of the Jesuits in particular, Uh, Their their mission is to undermine and destroy the Protestant Reformation. Uh, Whenever you see someone that is a Jesuit, you you know that they are peculiarly commissioned to do things to destroy Protestantism. In this case, they were trying to undermine uh, the king and the stability of his government. They wanted to remove him and put in his place a Popish monarch. If they couldn't turn him back to Popery, they wanted to get a Popish king in there. (coughs) So, this idea, and we're going to talk about this more when we get to the National, or excuse me, the Solemn League and Covenant, but uh, the idea here already is they're interested in defending the magistrate to the extent that he is identi- identical, really, to the Protestant cause. Right. So they they're they're saying, look, as a Protestant king, uh, your your throne is established by maintaining Protestantism, and anything that would undermine Protestantism is going to undermine your throne. <clears throat> So that's why they say he is the same friends and enemies. Uh, but this raises our, our second question, right? Is covenanting especially appropriate at times when the true religion stands in danger or the nation stands in peril? And uh, the answer here is yes. We want to begin looking at 2 Chronicles 34, 29 to 32. 2 Chronicles 34, verses 29 through 32.
3: Then the king sent and gathered together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. And the king went up into the house of the Lord, and all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the priests and the and all the peoples, great and small. And he read in their ears all the words of the book of the covenant that was found in the house of the Lord. And he took his place and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep the commandments and the testimonies and statutes, with all his heart and with all his soul to perform the words of the covenant. He caused all that were
0: present in Jerusalem and Benjamin to stand to it, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. All right, so in the reign of Josiah, the people of Judah, their king, the officers, the judges, the priests, the Levites, all the citizens, small and great, renewed their covenant with the God of their fathers. 2 Kings
1: 23, 1-3. 2 Kings 23, verse 1-3. And the king sent and they gathered unto him all the elders of Judah and of Jerusalem. And the king went up into the house of the Lord, and all the men of Judah, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with him, and the priests, and the prophets, and all the people, both small and great. And he cried in their ears all the words of the book of the covenant, which were found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by a pillar and made a covenant before the Lord, to walk after the Lord, and to keep his covenant. And they set all their heart and all their soul, formed the words of this covenant, after written in this book, and all
0: the people stood to the covenant. So the um, the fact is that they enter into covenant. Now, why do they do that? Why do they go through all of these uh, motions? Well, we know that. The the reign preceding Josiah, his father, uh, was Manasseh. Manasseh was probably as wicked a king as ever there was. And um, amazingly, his son, Josiah, turns out to be uh, probably as good a king as Israel ever had. right, Or, Or Judah, the southern kingdom. And so... In, in the preceding reign, the condition of the church had become deplorable by the immorality, idolatry, and cruelty of Manasseh, who gave himself up to work all manner of evil with greediness. And we can see this if we look back at Second Kings 21, verses
4: 10, 16, and 17. 2 Kings 21, verse 10. And the Lord spake by the servants, the prophets, saying, 16 and 17, Moreover, Manasseh shed innocent blood very much. So he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another, beside his sin, wherewith he made Judah to sin, in doing that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and all that he did, and his sin that he sinned, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah?
0: So Manasseh was not a good guy at all. Uh, and under him, true religion fell into... Uh, It fell into, uh, well, it fell out of fashion, right? It, it, it fell into disuse. Um, most of the people were carried away. <clears throat> you know, when the rulers of a kingdom, <clears throat> when the chief magistrates are wicked, uh, when they are doing wickedly, when they're exampling, <clears throat> wickedness and profanity uh, that coarsens uh, the the um, the society of the people under them, and so in Manasseh you have someone who's particularly uh, what we would call a bad egg. Right? he is again, I think, the worst of of um, the kings, in at least in Judah, and um, he through example, through his idolatry, his immorality, he's he set the tone for all of society. Now, the reason I bring them up is because although it's not explicitly mentioned in the national covenant, <clears throat> The language that they're using here is language <clears throat> that is is deliberately meant to to call them to call them uh, to pay attention to uh, the uh, uh, the situation that they found themselves in. At the end of the reign, once once James inherits the crown of England, from that time, um, really up until the Second Reformation, under the king, under James, and then under his son Charles, things had gotten worse and worse. The, the whole situation had become um, increasingly bad. And you could say that that period of time for them, for Scotland, was in a sense like the situation under under Manasseh. And so in renewing the covenant, what they're really hoping for is that they're going to have a Josiah uh, moment that maybe, uh, and and I think they um, probably hope that Charles would come around. Uh, He doesn't. Uh, and his son certainly doesn't later on, Charles II. But um, uh, the fact is that they do have a lot of magistrates, lower magistrates, who in Scotland are very much interested in seeing this enacted. And Scotland had its own parliament. One of the purposes of parliament is to... um, uh, to hem in the, the, uh, uh, the authority of the king right to to set limits on what the king can and can't do. And so as we, we think about what's going on here with Manasseh and then the switch to Josiah, there is if we were to look at the historical record of what's going on in Scotland, there is something kind of like this, right uh, for a period of time, like under Manasseh, they're losing track of who they were and what Reformation was and why they had reformed uh, and and even the way back. And Charles, in particular, when he comes to the throne, uh, he doesn't understand. He's never lived in Scotland for any lengthy period of time. He doesn't, even though uh, he ascends to the throne when his father dies in, um, I believe it was 1625. He doesn't go to Scotland. He doesn't even go there until 1633, I think it was eight years later, that he finally goes. But he never understood the spirit of the Scottish people like his father. And so he's the one who tries to impose upon them the prayer book and the liturgy and all of that, which is what brings about uh, this this second Reformation movement. All right, the holy scriptures we know uh, under Manasseh had been so disregarded and banished from the court of the irreligious monarch. Look at Second Kings 21, 1-9. to
5: Manasseh was 12 years old <throat> when he began to reign, and reigned 55 5 years in <throat> Jerusalem. And his mother was Episodio, and he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord after the abominations of the kingdom. The Lord cast out before the children of Israel. For he built up again the high places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed, and he reared up altars for Baal, and made a grove, as did Ahab king of Israel, and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord said, In Jerusalem will I put my name, and he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he made his son pass through the fire, and observed times, and used enchantments, and dealt with familiar spirits and wizards. He brought much wickedness in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. And he sent a graven image of the grove that he had made in the house, of which the Lord said to David and the son of his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all tribes of Israel, will I put my name forever. Neither will I make the feet of Israel move any more out of the land which I gave their fathers, only if they will observe to do according to all that I have commanded them and according to all the law that my servant them but
0: they hearken not, and Manasseh's used them to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the children of Israel. Yes. So, th- this time of Manasseh is total, uh, it's a total disregard, deforming, uh, disregard of the scriptures. The scriptures are, are apparently so disregarded, so rare were the known copies that even the young King Josiah, when he ascended the throne, appears never to have seen, nor to have heard, read the book of the law. Look what happens when he f- sees one. 2 Kings 22, 8-11. I have found the book of the law in the
4: house of the Lord. I have the book of the Lord. The Lord came to order me, the servants have gathered the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of them that do the work that have the oversight of the house of the Lord. The scribe showed the king, saying, "How kind of priest put the me a book." He read it before the king. and The to pass from the king to read the words of the book of the law.
0: Now you may or may not remember, but in Deuteronomy, Moses says, "When, when you have a king." Uh, this king is supposed to write out the book of the law, Him, actually himself. He's to write it out so that he knows it. You, if you write something out by hand, you can't ever say, I didn't know that was there. Okay. So the duty of the king was to be familiar with the law. Because, of course, his job is to see that it's upheld in the kingdom. Well, Manasseh had um, not only disregarded the law, evidently copies had become very scarce. So scarce when Josiah finally is faced with a copy of the law, he has what we might call an aha moment. Spiritually speaking, this is the beginning of his reform. He knows now what's wrong and why. So he rents his clothes. He's in mourning. This is, in essence, what Waterston and Henderson are hoping to do by dusting off this old national covenant and adding this historical testimony and this accommodation and bringing it before the people again right? it's, they they're hoping that like Josiah the people in Scotland will react uh, and they'll will mourn for their sin and for time they do right there's going to be a flowering of a second reformation in Scotland there will be and it will it will Uh, be um, credibly dated to the renewal of this covenant in 1638. Right? Now, the thing that set them off, and I mentioned this before, this thing that set them off looking to see if they could find the... um, the, uh, national covenant or find a way back was that event in 1637 where they tried to introduce liturgy in St. Giles, and Jenna Geddes threw a stool at the the dean when he started to read from the liturgy, right? But this is what they're hoping, <clears throat> and they, they are hoping because they know in the Bible, covenanting <clears throat> covenanting has been a great means God has used to bring about reformation, to rescue true religion at uh, times when it's been most imperiled. So, to consolidate the strength of the godly by bringing them into the bond of public covenant and stirring them up to place their reliance on the God of Israel, he, that is Josiah, and they engage their hearts to seek the divine favor and blessing in their good work of reformation by an act of public covenanting. Uh, look at second chronicles twenty nine ten yeah so they're they're looking to turn away the wrath of God and, and again, I would just say that knowing what waterston and and um, Henderson are doing, knowing what happened happened in Scotland at the first Reformation with covenanting, knowing what the Bible says about it, uh, believing as they certainly do that they're at a a moment of supreme crisis, right? Where they're either going to succumb to allowing liturgies and prayer books and and all of these other things from from the episcopal church the anglican uh, establishment into the church of scotland right they're going to they're going to either going to totally capitulate or they're going to turn around you can't remain as they were trying to do they for for decades at this point the church of scotland had been compromising in order to avoid angering the king. And now with this covenant, uh, Warriston and Henderson, and it turns out a lot of the the, uh, nobles, the lower magistrates, and the ministers in the Church of Scotland are going to say, no, we don't really care anymore. Um, We have to do what's right. And we're going to renew this covenant. And by the way, Uh, They're pointing out, you know, the king is bound to this. When the king took this in 1580, he bound himself and his house to this covenant. All right. And and keep in mind, at the end of all of this, James is um, a representative of the House of Stuart. The House of Stuart suffers a temporary setback. Uh, after Charles II is, is beheaded in 1649. And for about 10 years, you have, you have the, uh, the period of the Commonwealth, first and, and for the largest part of time under Oliver Cromwell, uh, whom we view as the usurper. And then for a short period of time, under Richard Cromwell, his son, uh, a.k.a. the son of the usurper and himself a usurper. Uh, then there's a restoration when Charles II ascends the throne uh and and that's when things get really bad at the end of it all in in at the time of the glorious reform uh, what they call the glorious revolution the revolution of William and Mary the whole nation casts off the house of stuart right and any covenanter worth his or her salt would say, look, the reason why the House of Stuart was treated in this fashion was because the House of Stuart, more than any other monarchy in Britain, at least since the Reformation, uh, they were at first covenant takers and then a, a house of covenant breakers. Right. They explicitly took it and then broke it. And they lose the monarchy as a result of it. So this is all designed to try to wake up the king. You know, contrary to uh, what some of the narratives are, the Covenanters were not inherently disloyal to the king. They had high hopes for the king. James had taken the covenant. right? His son was bound by that. And they really hoped that he would return and embrace the covenant that bound him. <clears throat> rather than perish a covenant breaker. Anyway, let's continue with this national covenant. We, noblemen, barons, gentlemen, burgesses, ministers, and commons, under subscribing, considering diverse times before, and especially this time, the danger of the true Reformed religion, of the king's honor, and of the public peace of the kingdom, by the manifold innovations and evils generally contained, particularly mentioned in our late supplications, complaints, and protestations, do hereby profess. And before God as angels in the world solemnly declare that with our whole heart we agree and resolve all the days of our life constantly to adhere unto and to defend the force of true religion, and forbearing the practice of all innovations already introduced in the matters of the worship of God, or approbation of the corruptions of the public government of the church, or civil places and power of churchmen, till they be tried aloud in free assemblies and in parliament. To labor by all lawful, by all means lawful, to recover the purity and liberty of the gospel, as it was established and professed before the foresaid novations, and because after due examination we plainly perceive and undoubtedly believe that the innovations and evils contained in our supplications, complaints, and protestations have no warrant in the word of God, are contrary to the articles of the of the foresaid confession to the intention and meaning of the blessed reformers of religion in this land, to the above-written acts of Parliament, and do sensibly tend to the re-establishing of the Popish religion and tyranny, and to the subversion and ruin of the true reformed religion, and of our liberties, laws, and estates, we also declare that the foresaid confessions are to be interpreted and ought to be understood of the foresaid novations and evils no less than if every one of them had been expressed in the aforesaid confessions, and that we were obliged to detest and abhor them, amongst other particular heads of papistry abjured therein. So, <coughs> again, there uh, they they clearly see that the um, that the danger is to the nation civilly and ecclesiastically. They see that the king's welfare and uh, the estate of true religion are intimately connected. The idea that you can have the blessings of Christianity without Christianity is... It's, it's the express wish of Balaam, isn't it? Balaam wants to die the death of the righteous, but he doesn't want to live the life of the righteous. But here uh, they're saying, no, 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 we, we, intend, <clears throat> we intend to live the life of the righteous. And we're going to come back to that point uh, because it comes up again. Right, this idea that they're concerned that they are practically religious. And, uh, but there's this other idea here that I mentioned at the beginning. <clears throat> they see the covenant not as some narrow and um, uh, circumscribed uh, obligation, But they see it as expressing a very broad obligation. An obligation which is to take in not only the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. Right? Not only the letter of the covenant, but the spirit of the covenant. And and so what they're saying is that look, clearly, our national covenant was against popery. Clearly, our national covenant, and we looked at this a couple of weeks ago, uh, it, it abjures all kinds of popish ornaments, right? Uh whether it's sprinkling things with holy water or pilgrimages or sainting or the sign of the cross or uh, any number of things. Right, celebration of holy days. <clears throat> All of these things are condemned. And they're saying, look, in condemning those things of popery, you need to understand that their intention was to condemn anything like unto it, even if it doesn't call itself popery. In other words, prelacy. Right? It calls itself Anglicanism. Well, you know, if it's popish, it's popish. Whether it's in the Roman Church or not, it's not grounded in the Word of God. Doesn't have um, it. Doesn't have uh, conformity to the um, written Word. It is what they they call novation. It's an inno... We would probably say innovation, but it's it's a new thing. It means it's something new brought into the church. And uh, when they say new, they don't mean that it's necessarily what we think of when we think of new. They just mean that it's something which has arisen in the church after the times of the apostles. I mean, so anything after the apostles stopped writing uh, scripture... Any liturgical practice, any any worship um, that that was that was um, being set forth, any any of that is also excluded, right? They're they're excluding if, if it was excluded, uh, whatever is. Um, The spirit of popery. Just because it's in the Anglican Church, the Anglican establishment does not mean that you know just because they're ostensibly Protestant that that's acceptable. Uh, Protestants, and this is really this is key to the Second Reformation: the recognition that it's possible for someone to be formally protestant and yet still be partaking of the spirit of popery right it's not enough to be formally protestant right you know why what's what's wrong with uh, these people that call themselves reformed presbyterians you know they're it's 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 a formality right they're they're formally formally they're reformed presbyterian are they really no no the fact is that, that the the spirit of of who they are and what they're doing is actually dead set against the spirit of reformed presbyterianism right because if it weren't they wouldn't be pushing all the garbage that they do Right, they're responsive readings now. This is becoming a thing in these Reformed Presbyterians. Responsive readings, right? That was considered a dead practice, a deadening practice by our Protestant forebears in Scotland. Right, allowing anyone to celebrate holy days, even in their private capacity, right? That was declared to be idolatry right it wasn't permitted for you as a member of the congregation and you couldn't even be a minister you couldn't you wouldn't be considered for the ministry if you were so stupefied by the spirit of popery that you would celebrate that garbage <clears throat> so this idea then that the confession of the church represents a living spirit of teaching is really grounded in that that idea that the, the law is extremely broad right? the more we contemplate our duty or we contemplate uh, the things that are prohibited you know the broader we see that law is there's there aren't gray areas. Right? Everything really, if we understand the Bible, everything really is a matter of black and white. Okay? It's right or wrong. There are no shadowy in between areas. Right? And that's important. Because there is, in in this age in particular, it seems that there is uh, this spirit of the age where. We are to embrace uncertainty. We're to embrace the position of wavering and standing in the middle of the road. <clears throat> People standing in the middle of the road are going to go to hell in two ways, right? Um, there, There isn't any middle ground. And that's really what the, these guys are telling us when they do this accommodation. So... With that, question three, ought the confession of the church to be interpreted in such a way that extends itself even to those things, though not explicitly mentioned, yet stand condemned in the spirit of the creed? The answer is yes. Look at Matthew 5, 21 and 22. And again, Jesus does this throughout the Sermon on the Mount, doesn't he? Where he takes the law. Why? Because the Pharisees tended to want to stop at the letter of the law. Thou shalt not kill, for them, means literally thou shalt not kill, but I can hate my brother in my heart. You know, everything up until that... Crossing the line in the seventh commandment, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Everything up until that is somehow permissible, but I can't cross that line. And Jesus is saying, No, you're you know you're looking at it exactly the wrong way, <clears throat> and that's what the the covenanters are saying in the in the covenant here. What Henderson is telling them, right when when the covenant prohibits popery it doesn't just prohibit that which is popish because it's it's carrying the popish label, you know, because it's been approved by the Pope of Rome. It's condemning everything that savors of the way the man of sin thinks and the enactments that the Roman Church thinks are conducive to the edification of of the church. Now, we've talked about this before, and if you don't remember, I I would certainly recommend uh, going back and listening to uh, what we did uh, some time ago when we were going through the larger catechism, larger and shorter catechisms, but in the larger catechism, there are a series of rules that are set forth for understanding the law. To summarize for our point here, it is a scriptural principle to understand that where one sin or duty is forbidden or commanded, all like sins or duties are to be contemplated. So look at Matthew fifteen, four to six, and first Thessalonians five, twenty two. Matthew fifteen,
1: four to six. God commanded saying, Honor thy father or mother, and if they curse a the father or mother, let him die to death. and we say? Whosoever shall say his father or his mother is the gift, by whatsoever that might be profited by me,
5: and honor not his father or mother, he shall be free, thus that he may heaven
2: a God of known by your tradition. First Thessalonians 5, 22. Abstain from all appearance of evil.
0: Yeah, so the point is this: when when God says to do something, we shouldn't be asking ourselves how little can I do in order to appease that commandment right we should be eager to do as much as we can do conversely <clears throat> when God's word says don't do something Right? We shouldn't be asking ourselves, how close can I get to the edge of that before I've crossed that line? We should be looking, as the Apostle says, to abstain from all appearance of evil. Right? We're, we don't always know exactly where the line is. But you see, that's the problem. The Pharisees wanted to draw the line at the letter of the law. And Jesus says, contrary to that, the line is not the letter of the law, the line is actually the spirit of the law. And that means only those who are spiritual will understand. And so when you're having trouble understanding... The spiritual thing to do is maximize your obedience and minimize anything that's going to be taking you toward disobedience. That's the point of these covenanters here. The reason is they believe their confession is founded upon and grounded upon the Word of God. And so... As expansive as that word is, so too the confession, the creed, the covenant of the church has to be understood. So consider the confession of the church being a form of sound words. Look at 2 Timothy 1.13. That forms a pattern of sound belief and practice, from which the teachers and elders of the church may infer things not explicit for the further instruction of the church in right doctrine and practice. Again, at Romans twelve six and uh, then we'll look at Acts fifteen six to twenty one. Romans twelve six 4, 10, <clears throat> according to the grace that is given to us whether
3: prophecy let us prophesy, let us prophesy according to the
4: of Six. Six. And the apostles and elders came together for consider this matter. And when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, ye know how that a good while ago God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us. But no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why tempt you God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? For we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ we shall be saved, even as they... Then all the multitude kept silence and gave audience to Barnabas and Paul, declaring what miracles and wonders God had wrought among the Gentiles by them. And after they had held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon hath declared how God is the first and visit of the Gentiles to take out of their people for his name. And to this disagree the words of the prophets as it is written. After this I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up that the residue of men might seek after the Lord and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. Wherefore my sentence is, that we trouble not them which from among the Gentiles are turned to God, but that we write unto them that they abstain from pollutions of idols and from fornication and from things strangled and from blood. For Moses of old time hath in every city them that preach him, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath day
0: you know the the point of synodic synodal decisions is to reason from uh, what is explicit and to infer from that right what what is not explicit but what is in accordance with the spirit of what is explicit. that's why Paul says in romans 12 six, you know that we're to prophesy, we're to teach according to the proportion of faith or the analogy of faith. There's an analogy. There's, there is. <clears throat> there is a. a um, uh, there's a gift that everyone has who teaches the word of God that allows them to perceive more or less of the spirit of what is being taught. And some perceive some things and not other things and so on. But all perceive according to the analogy of faith, the proportion of faith. There's some kind of participation in the spirit of that teaching and practice uh, to understand. This is quite often... Actually, in response to the rise of heresy. Look at 1 Corinthians 1 19. There must <clears> be also heresies among you, that they
5: which are approved may be manifest
0: among you. Yes, the nature of heresy to be self-choosing or private interpretation of Scripture. Titus 3.10 and 2 Peter one twenty. 20.
4: Yeah.
0: yeah. So the, the, the heretic, um, the the word heretic really references the fact that uh, they're they are um, they're they're choosing something out of themselves. Uh, they're not. In, in, it's very different from that idea of prophesying according to the proportion of faith. Right? That's a participation in the spirit of the law. But they're bringing forth something from themselves. And that's why uh, we're told it's not a matter of private interpretation. Therefore, whatever they do, whatever they say, is going to deviate from the teaching of the apostolic church. In Acts 20, verses 27 to 31. Acts
1: twenty verses twenty-seven I am not shall I declare unto you all the counsel of God, take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over to which the Holy Ghost of overseers, to the <throat> church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this <clears> that after my departing shall be resposed entering among you not sparing the flock. Also of your own self shall men arise, seeking perverse things, and draw away disciples after them. Therefore, watch and remember.
0: But cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. Okay, so again, the the pattern of sound belief uh, it is something which, like any pattern, uh, that can be replicated. Right there, there is. From the pattern, you are able to do something uh, in a different context, perhaps a different area than than um, uh, where that pattern existed first. But there's there is something about that, and truth itself is a pattern which therefore lends itself and its spirit to any situation, any circumstance. And it's the same with a biblical or scriptural creed or confession or covenant. In contrast, expansion of the creed, which is due to the contentions of heretics and heresies, right? There have to be heresies to show who among you is approved. That has the effect of establishing those churches which receive it in the truth. Uh, look at Acts 16, 4 and 5, and Hebrews 13, 9.
2: Acts 16, verses 4 and 5. And as they enter into the cities, they deliver them decrees for to keep that were ordained of the apostles and elders which were of Jerusalem, and where the church is established and in the faith, increased in number daily. 13,
4: verse 9. Be not carried about right, with diverse and doctrines, for it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace, not with needs, which have not profited them and have
0: been occupied their and Others, of course, because of their unbelief, are broken off. Look at Romans 11, 20. Romans
3: 11, verse 20. Well,
0: Belief broken heart and face, not mind, but fear. So again, the idea, you know, as the creed of the church expands, or as the covenant is is made to um, uh, to be explanatory of, of uh, additional circumstances and so on, it's really just an expansion of what was. There, but not explicit, right? Um, That's what's really going on with all good creeds. It's what's going on with all good covenants. What happens? Well, the Orthodox, the faithful, true believers receive that and the rest are broken off. We see that pattern from the very beginning. We see it in in the apostolic church. <clears throat> right. All of a sudden, the creed of the church go, goes from uh, the Lord our God is, is one Lord to, uh, to en- encompass the idea that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God incarnate. Right? Well, the, just, Some of the Jews acknowledge that, and the rest are broken off. Then in the early church, we see the same thing happening as they explain and give greater and greater detail with regard to the doctrine of the Trinity. <clears throat> with the doctrine of the Trinity being explained, uh, the Arians and the Gnostics are cut off. And there's no way back for them. They can't get back from where they are uh, because they don't have a way back. They've been cut off from the path of the truth. The path of the just is shining brighter and brighter toward the perfect day. Uh, The way of the wicked is getting broader and broader, but it's darker and darker. We see, again, the same thing happening with the person and deity of Christ. And then again, at at the Reformation, we see examples of the same kind of thing. Right as as each step of reformation uh, is is um, <clears throat> established, there are certain people who cling to it, and the rest are cut off from the truth. And they once you're cut off from the truth, you tend to go further and further afield. So again, it's it's no mistaking that. You know the General Presbyterian Church now has dropped to the point where they are willing to allow, uh, you know, sodomites to marry one another or to be ministers. Um, there, there's there was a a long decline to get to that point, but it began with covenant breaking, and in the Reformed Presbyterian Church in North America and, and the other RP churches around the world. Uh, their their decline is exactly traceable to their covenant breaking, and they continue to adopt and tolerate and allow more and more ungodliness, on and 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 uh, uh, deviations from what they formerly professed. Right. It, so it's it's just this is the way. That this goes when you go down that road and what these covenanters are saying is the way back is to embrace by faith the spirit of the covenant. Right. The the spirit of the covenant is rooted in the truth of scripture. You know, we're not just going, in other words, we're not just going to uh, go back and embrace the first reformation, are we? No, we're going to go forward. We're going to say, look, all of that, and guess what? Now we see all these other things that had we been listing all of that like they did in there, we would list them there too. right? They excluded all of this Popish doctrine and practice, <clears throat> and we're just saying, yeah, we can add to that everything in prelacy that reeks of, of that, uh, that scent of Rome. All right, let's move on to the next part of the, the uh, covenant. Therefore, from the knowledge and conscience of our duty to God, to our king and country, without any worldly respect or inducement, so far as human infirmity will suffer, wishing a further measure of the grace of God for this effect, We promise and swear by the great name of the Lord our God to continue in the profession and obedience of the foresaid religion that we shall defend the same and resist all these contrary errors and corruptions according to our vocation and to the uttermost of that power that God hath put in our hands all the days of our life. So uh, we're going to look at this question of question four. Is it proper to swear in the great name of the Lord our God? Um, but before we look at that, I just want to point out a couple of other things here again. Uh, they, one of the things that they note is they're not only going to defend the true religion and resist all contrary error and corruption, but they're going to do it according to their vocation. And when they say that, <clears throat> what they're saying in essence is this. Everyone here has a place and station in life, all right? You have a measure of authority in your life or over the lives of others, right? To the extent that you have an authority over others, you are responsible to exercise that authority toward them in accordance with this covenant, As much as you are responsible to exercise the spirit of this covenant within your own life. And if you don't do that, you are a covenant breaker. You are failing in your duty. You are refusing to own the obligations of the covenant You're refusing to own the spirit of the covenant. You're really refusing to be a covenanter, right? Uh, you're, you're honestly at the end of the day, what you are is you are an Anabaptist. You're an extreme individualist in heart, at heart, and you think that, um, you know, what everybody else does, it's just their own business. Well, that would be true if we were only individuals. We're not only individuals; we're individuals who are also happen to be in relation to other individuals, you know. And and that that vocation, it you could be in a situation where you're someone superior, or inferior, or equal. But in each of those stations, you have an obligation, right? When you don't exercise yourself in these things according to your vocation, you are failing to uphold the covenant. You're failing to do that which is required. Now that's a general life principle with regard to Christianity, but these guys are saying they, they understand this in a more pointed and confessed way because of the national covenant. <clears throat> they're they're acknowledging they see these things are applicable in a much broader uh, with a with a much we can paint it with a much broader uh, stroke. All right, so question four then is it proper to swear in the great name of the Lord our God? The answer is yes, Deuteronomy ten twenty. Deuteronomy ten twenty.
4: There shall fear the Lord thy God, and him shalt thou serve, and to him shalt thou cleave, and swear by his name.
0: <clears throat> so the Bible is very clear that we're to swear by the name of the Lord our God. And in fact, it's made plain when we consider a few points. Uh, first of all, there's no greater or higher name by which an oath can be confirmed. We look at Hebrews 6, 13, and 16. <clears throat>
5: Because
0: uh, he could swear by no greater, he swear by himself. Verse sixteen: For verily swear
4: by the greater, and for confirmation is. Second, we're expressly enjoined
0: to swear by his name, Deuteronomy six thirteen. And third, all those swearing falsely in the name of God is punishable; uh, it's blasphemy. This presumes a swearing truly, which is not punishable. So we'll get Leviticus
4: 19.12.
0: Okay, so we've we and we've talked about this idea of swearing by the name of the Lord and some of the things that, that are implied in this. Uh, we are, in doing that, taking hold of the covenant Uh, We are invoking um, the the highest concern, which is the glory of God in what we're doing. And so that's what they're doing here. right? They're very conscious of the fact that they are taking hold of the great name of the Lord our God. And um, they're owning... This as an act of divine worship. Mm -hmm. Let me continue with reading here from the National Covenant. And in like manner, with the same heart, we declare before God and men that we have no intention nor desire to attempt anything that may turn to the dishonor of God or to the diminution of the king's greatness and authority. But on the contrary, we promise and swear that we shall, to the uttermost of our power, with our means and lives, stand to the defense of our dread sovereign, the king's majesty, his person and authority, in the defense and preservation of the aforesaid uh, true religion, liberties, and laws of the kingdom. As also to the mutual defense and assistance, every one of us of another in the same cause of maintaining the true religion and His Majesty's authority with our best counsel, our bodies, means, and whole power against all sorts of persons whatsoever. So that whatsoever shall be done to the least of us for that cause shall be taken as done to all of us, to us all in general, and every one of us in particular that we shall neither directly nor indirectly suffer ourselves to be divided with withdrawn by whatsoever suggestion, combination, allurement, or terror from this blessed and loyal conjunction, nor shall cast in any let or impediment that may stay or hinder any such resolution, as by common consent shall be found to conduce for so good ends. But on the contrary, shall by all lawful means labor to further and promote the same, if any such dangerous and divisive motion be made to us by word or writ, we and every one of us shall either suppress it or, if need be, shall incontinent make the same known, that it may be timidly obviated. Neither do we fear the foul aspersions of rebellion, combination, or what else our adversaries from their craft of malice would put upon us. Seeing What we do is so well warranted and ariseth from an unfeigned desire to maintain the true worship of God, the majesty of our King, and the peace of the kingdom, for the common happiness of ourselves and our posterity. And because we cannot look for a blessing from God upon our proceedings, except with our profession and subscription, we join such a life and conversation as beseemeth Christians who've renewed their covenant with God. We, therefore, faithfully promise for ourselves, our followers, and all others under us, both in public and in our particular families and personal carriage, to endeavor to keep ourselves within the bounds of Christian liberty and to be good examples to others of all godliness, soberness, and righteousness, and of every duty we owe to God and man. Uh, So again, there's a lot here. We want to um, focus really on just a couple of points in this, but before I do, I I want to point out again, they are adamant that what they're doing is not in any way detrimental to the um, establishing of the throne. And the reason is, if you go back a couple of weeks ago, Look at, uh, and I I gave you that on your sheet a couple of weeks ago, the National Covenant, the first week you have the National Covenant there. If you look at it, you can see that intimately connected with this idea of reformation is an upholding of all lawful civil authority in pursuing the same. And so, if you've done what they've just done, as we saw last time, quoting from all the laws, showing that you know they're just doing what is according to the law of the land, showing that what they're doing is in accordance with what they've pledged themselves by covenant to do. Right? None of this, in whole or in part, can. Um, can be viewed as as um, subversive to the authority of the king, unless the authority of the king <clears throat> is going to set itself against the ends that are contemplated in the covenant. In which case, that covenant does not uh, does not protect that authority, but in fact that covenant by their own admission and concession. That covenant is lawfully against them. So in addition to that, they end this section talking about, uh, again, their their, um, obligation, according to their vocation, to see that this is carried out and so they talk about they promised for themselves their followers and others under them in public and in their particular families that they're going to pursue the ends of the covenant you have an obligation uh, with your your friends your siblings your your the people at work uh, people, around you in general, you have an obligation to be conducting things to lead them in this direction, to press them toward these things. You know, leaving people to their own devices without ever saying a word Uh, without ever pressing anything, is leaving people to perish in their iniquity. Because you have to remember, people who are not regenerate, people who are not converted, are probably not going to ask you. They're not going to be forward in, in raising questions to you uh, it doesn't usually work that way. Now they may say things that open the door for you, but they're really not going to press it uh, the way that you should. <coughs> and so these covenanters are saying, "We're going to do it." And by the way, one of the great ways you are going to do it is we're going to set an example, right? So let me let me just take us back to things that we talked about. Some time ago, when we went through all that stuff on modesty, and you you know you should probably listen to that again and again, because we live in a very immodest culture, and and everything is pressing you in a different direction, right? But how you conduct yourself at every level, right? From uh, the way you dress to the way you speak how you interact with other people, you know what kind of job you do for them when you're working for them. All of these things are going to impact whether or not you are going to be effective in carrying out your duty to them as your equals, inferiors, or even superiors. <clears throat> so question five. Is it necessary that practical godliness accompany outward acts of covenanting? The answer is yes. We're going to begin looking at Ezekiel 20, verse 37. Ezekiel 20, verse
1: 37. I will cause you to pass under the rod and I will bring
0: you into the bond of the covenant. <clears throat> yeah, I will cause you to pass under the rod and bring you into the bond of the covenant. What, what's he talking about? The passing under the rod is is to be Brought under discipline. right? So when you're brought into the covenant, you're being brought under discipline. You know, when, when you're a total pagan, you're not under any discipline. There's a discipline in your life. <clears throat> you're not being discipled. Discipline, remember, discipline and disciple, they're related words. Discipline is what happens to people who are being made disciples? You know, you discipline your children because you want them to be disciples of you. You discipline people in the church because you want them to be disciples of the church. Right? Nations discipline people uh, in in various ways, they have criminal law. Why? Because they want them to be disciples of that national identity. Right, discipline is is to be deliberative and formative. <clears throat> people who are outside are not disciplined. <clears throat> discipline is something which belongs to people who are inside. You know, when someone gives up discipline, they've given up on the person. The Lord is a covenant avenging God we will not suffer those entering into covenant with him to profane it with their graceless and careless breaking of it. Look at Leviticus 26 25. Leviticus 26 25. And <coughs> I will bring you the covenant
5: that shall avenge the poor of my covenant. And when ye are gathered together within your cities, I will send the pestilence among you, and ye shall be delivered into the in hands of the enemy.
0: God God threatens his covenant avenging sword <clears throat> against what? Covenant breakers? Who are covenant breakers? Covenant breakers are people who refuse the discipline of the covenant. Right? You are brought under discipline. When you come into covenant, you are Acceding to that discipline. Now this wickedness is sometimes open contempt for the true religion. So look at first Kings nineteen fourteen.
2: First Kings nineteen verse fourteen he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, because the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, burned down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left,
0: and they seek my life to take it away. Yeah, so it, it, that's sometimes how, you know, it, it comes about. Uh, there's open content, but other times it's manifested in a stubborn refusal to abide in God's law. Uh, look at Psalm 78 10. War and unsteadfastness in maintaining the ends contemplated in the covenant. It's Psalm, 78, Psalm
3: 78
0: 37. They're not steadfast in his covenant. Right? Why? Because they're not. Steadfast in adherence to the terms or the discipline. The discipline is important. You know, catechism, Catechism is a disciplining of your mind. We're disciplining your mind to learn to think a certain way, to associate certain things. The discipline of the body <clears throat> is meant to make you mindful of other things with respect to uh, the the covenant. Right, all transgressing of God's laws accounted a matter of covenant breaking. Look at Isaiah twenty four five. Also, is the violence of the inhabitants thereof because they have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinances, broken the covenant. Yeah. So the the fact is, covenant breaking <coughs> is transgressing the law. Covenant keeping is keeping the law, right? But we we need to understand how do we keep the law? Do we keep? Are we are we called simply to keep the letter of the law? No. We're being called to keep the spirit of the law. You know, it's not how little I can do, and still be considered a Christian. You you don't if you really care about someone or something. You don't spend your life thinking how little can I do, get away with doing, and still be, um, still be in 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 a good in good standing in that relation, right? You just don't do that, and yet there are a lot of people who think that they're Christians and they do that with God. You know, how little? What, you know, how far can I go? How close can I get to the edge? You know, when it, when is my, my um, uh, conduct crossed the line? When has my speech crossed the line? When has the way I've attired myself crossed the line? Uh, you know, When. when have I breached a commandment? the legal legalism is looking for the the uh, edge at the letter of the law it's really legalism the pharisees are the legalists right they're they're the ones who are concerned with the keeping of the law in the letter jesus considered them the legalists they were they but a legalist doesn't really pay attention to the spirit of the law <clears throat> and yet the spirit of the law is, in fact, <clears throat> the life of the law. And so, because of that, because that the uh, the spirit of the law is what's in view, the true worship of God is the true service of the covenant, which men are called to in taking hold of the covenant. Look at Isaiah 56, 6-8. Isaiah 56.
4: 8. Also the sons of the stranger that join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it and taketh hold of my covenant, even them will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon mine altar, and my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. The Lord God which gathereth the outcasts of Israel saith, yet will I gather others to him, besides those that are
0: gathered unto him. Therefore, failures in this service are counted among the most egregious against the majesty of the covenant God. Look at Isaiah 1, 13-15, and Leviticus
5: 10, 1-3. Isaiah 1, verses 13, says, bring no more the offenses of the the calling of assemblies I cannot agree away <laughs> with, even the solemn meeting. Your wounds, and your pointed pieces. peace, and if they are a trouble unto me, I am a burden of you, and may it spread to your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you, that you will make a one. be made with prayer, will not hear, and your hand will not blood. One, two, three, and eight out of the Bible, the sons of
4: Aaron, took either of them the censer and put fire therein to put incense with them,
5: and offered him much fire
4: before the Lord, which he commanded them not. They went out fire from the Lord and devoured them and they died before the Lord. And it was a sound that the Lord spake, saying, I will be sanctified and that come nine before all the people I the to be
0: And Aaron held his peace. So we're gonna get into this a little bit more in the last question, but the reason why worship is so central to the whole idea of covenant keeping and even the keeping of the law, is because in worship, the the covenanter is uh, in, in the process of receiving, in, in a sense, uh, mouth-to-mouth resuscitation from God himself, so that he can Keep the law in the spirit of the law. And it's in, in worshiping God in the way that he's appointed that we not only learn the spirit of the law, but we receive the spirit of that law from God himself as he continues to breathe new life into his people. And so if you cut off that true worship and substitute something else, You make it virtually impossible to keep all of these other things in the spirit of the law. You you can render an outward obedience, but the heart obedience, we're going to come back to that, that's what God is really seeking here. And the heart throb... The, the incubation of that spiritual life is in worship. And so when worship is distorted from what God has appointed to something else, what you're nurturing, <clears throat> what you're growing and what's being breathed into it is something contrary to what God has appointed for an acceptable service. All right. <clears throat> We're almost to the end of the... National Covenant here. So let me continue. And that this our union and conjunction may be observed without violation, we call the living God, the searcher of our hearts, to witness, who knoweth this to be our sincere desire and unfeigned resolution, as we shall answer to Jesus Christ in the great day and under the pain of God's everlasting wrath and of infamy and loss of all honor and respect in this world. So, the next question is, is it proper to call God to witness as the great searcher of hearts? And I would say the answer again is clearly yes. First Chronicles twenty-eight, nine. 28 So God is looking not from the outside in, but from the inside out. The evaluation is not like man's evaluation. Because God actually does know your motive. God actually knows whether you are uh, favorably disposed to him. what your true intentions are. The Lord requires those entering into covenant with him to have their hearts set in order. 1 Chronicles 29, 17. 1 Chronicles 29, verse 17. I know also,
1: my God, that thou triest the heart and hast pleasure in uprightness. As for me in the uprightness of mine heart, I have willingly offered all these things. Now have I seen with joy thy people, which are present here, to offer willingly unto thee.
0: And we we know it's accounted a great sin of the Israelites they flattered God with their mouth but left their hearts set upon sinful courses Psalms 78 36 and 37 and ezekiel 33 31
5: psalm 78 the they did flatter him with their mouth and they lied unto him with their tongues their heart was not right with him neither were they steadfast in his covenant thank you
2: Thirty-three, verse thirty-one. And they came unto thee as the people coming, and they sit before thee as my people. And they hear thy words, but they will not do them. With their mouth they show much love, but their heart turns after their
0: covetousness. Right. The true God is not deceived by outward appearances, but is careful to discern the hearts of men, their deepest inward dispositions. First Samuel sixteen seven. So the the fact is that God is um, God is looking upon the outward the outward disposition uh, only <clears throat> as it is an accurate. A true reflection of inward disposition. So here we see that that um, it's it's very proper then for God to be called to be a witness of of uh, men, a searcher of the heart, because only God really knows the heart of men. Right? You you don't know the heart of another. I don't know the heart of another, but God certainly does know. The heart of everyone, and he discerns what's really going on, <clears throat> and um, he is—he is very much forward to uh, looking eagerly at the hearts of men, <clears throat> so that men are uh, men are compliant. With um, the spirit of the law, and not just the letter. Again, this tells us that God is uh, God is interested in not simply an outward compliance, but that voluntary. Um, acquiescence, that voluntary uh, obedience, which is exactly that, which is contemplated in covenanting. Right? In, in covenanting, we are adding our voluntary assent to what was before simply a matter of commanded duty. All right, so let's continue with the last bit of the National Covenant. Uh, Most humbly beseeching the Lord to strengthen us by his Holy Spirit for this end and to bless our desires and proceedings with a happy success that religion and righteousness may flourish in the land to the glory of God, the honor of our King, and peace and comfort of us all. In witness whereof we have subscribed with our hands all the premises. So finally then in question seven. Is it necessary to rely on the Holy Spirit working in the covenanter to strengthen him to keep the ends contemplated? The answer is yes. Look at Romans eight twenty-six. Romans eight, Romans
3: 26. <clears throat> Likewise the Spirit also helped with our infirmities. We know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself make intercession for us with
0: groanings, which Yes, the, the fact is this no one is able apart from the Spirit of God working in him to do those good works contemplated in covenanting. We'll look at John 15 4 6, Philippians 2 13, and Second Corinthians 3 5. John
1: 15 verses 4 through 6. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except to abide in the vine, no more can be said. Abide in me. <clears throat> I am the vine, you are the branches, he that abides in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit, not me, you can be nothing. The man abides not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered, and men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned.
4: In verse 13, For the God which worketh in you both to will and to do with his good pleasure. Verse 5, Not that we are sufficient for
5: ourselves, but
0: we are sufficient for God. So the the reason for this um, concern, the Spirit of God be working in us, is first of all, we're being required to keep not simply the letter of the law, but the Spirit of the law. And when we take hold of the covenant, we are we're volunteering for the duty, right? We're we're lining up and saying, "Yeah, we'll do it." Okay, but we're doing it with reliance upon the Spirit. Because only the Spirit who inspired and and dictated the law can reveal in and to us and through us the obedience to that law. Okay, so we need the same Spirit working in us. And in addition to that, what is necessary to all acceptable service is a new heart, which is only found in new in uh the new creature. Ezekiel eleven nineteen and Galatians uh, 6,
4: 15. And I will put a new spirit within you and I will take the stony heart out of their flesh and will give them the heart of flesh.
1: Galatians fifteen
0: yeah, but that cannot arise from the flesh, only from the Spirit. Look at John 3, 6. John 6.
1: That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit.
0: So, so, in other words, when we consider what is required, even in people who are regenerate, in fact, only in people who are regenerate, there is a second principle at work, right? When you're regenerate, there is the planting of a new seed. <clears throat> there's the growth of a new creature. But for the remainder of your time on earth, there's also the old creature, the the flesh, right? There's, there's a flesh principle and there's a spiritual principle. Existing side by side in you. And the spiritual is called upon daily to put to death the flesh. The old man, the old creature. It's dying and it needs to be strangled out. And sanctification is about that. But the fact is, then nothing which arises from the flesh... nothing that arises from the flesh in terms of worship or in any sense would have respect to the obedience to the law could possibly obey the spirit of the law. Because the flesh is contrary to that law. There's nothing in it that really wants to keep the spirit of the law. The flesh is what is continually telling you just do the bare minimum. The flesh is what's continually telling you you can slide by, you know, with a D minus when God requires an A plus. Right? When in a in a in a world where A plus is the only passing grade, you know, your flesh is trying to convince you that something less than that is what God requires. And and it does that because once you're convinced that less than perfection is what God requires, well, then you can find that power in your flesh. right? You can find that <clears throat> strength in yourself somewhere. But as long as you have before you that requirement that it is absolute perfection that God requires, well, that... Then can only arise from the Spirit, right? When, when God says, or when John says, I should say that that um, uh, that those who are uh, the children of God don't sin. What he's talking about is the new man, the new creature, right? And to the extent that you are in fact behind the new creature and not falling back behind the old man, Uh, you're not sinning. Because everything coming out of the new creature is the working of the Spirit of God, working out the implications and applications of the new life. The problem is that in this life, we're not going to attain to spiritual perfection. And so there are times, as Paul points out in Romans 7, when... The old man will have ascendance, or when there's there's a, a struggle going on. Just remember that the, the unregenerate and, and particularly the unconverted, um, they're not really struggling with sin. You know, it's not a struggle to them, it doesn't bother them like it might bother you if you're a believer, right? Because for them, it's all they know, for them, it's all they do. For them, it's just sort of the way things are. Uh, And they've never tasted of that new life uh, in in the way that believers have once they've entered upon a course of of, um, obedience. So it is very necessary. (coughs) If we're going to keep more than just the letter, if we're going to attain to the spirit of this covenant, it's very necessary the spirit of God be working in and through all who are covenanters. So um, that's, that is an important point here. And although it comes at the end, I, I think Henderson is reminding all of us of the necessity of the new creation and the need of the spirit of God in order to render an acceptable service. All right, next time, uh, we're going to begin going over the Solemn League, and we'll be spending several weeks on that.